0: Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
1: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
2: This is such a Odd case for our usual jurisprudence. Um, it seems like your law is covering just about every social media platform on the internet. And we have a who are not traditional social media um, <clears throat> platforms like smartphones and others who have submitted a Mikai brief telling them that readings of this
0: law could cover them. And during the next almost four hours of oral arguments today, the Supreme Court justices continued to grapple with the new Republican-backed laws in Texas and Florida that would sharply restrict the ability of social media companies to regulate the content posted by their users. Several justices echoed the concerns of Justice Sonia Sotomayor about how the overly broad laws might affect other tech services, including e-commerce sites like Uber and Etsy and email and messaging services. Here's Justice Amy Coney Barrett. So Florida's law, so far as I can understand it, is very broad. And we're talking about the classic social media platforms, but it looks to me like it could cover Uber. It looks to me like it could cover just Google search engines, Amazon Web Service, and all of those things would look very different. And, you know, Justice Sotomayor brought up Etsy. It seems to me that there are, now Etsy has a feed recommended for you, right? But it also just has shops for handmade goods that you can get. It looks a lot more like a brick and mortar marketplace or flea market, you know, than, you know, a place for hosting speech. Joining me is Eric Goldman, co-director of the High Tech Law Institute at Santa Clara University Law School. Four hours, what was the major question or questions that the justices were grappling with?
1: The primary question the judges were wrestling with is whether the cases that presented itself to them was ready for their determination. The uh, case has been styled as a facial challenge, which means that the plaintiffs are trying to overturn the laws entirely. And the court wasn't sure if that was a proper procedural challenge or if a better procedure would have been preferred.
0: Justice Sonia Sotomayor started out by saying that this is such an odd case for us. The Florida law is so broad. It's covering almost everything. She talked about whether it would apply to Etsy. And later on, Justice Amy Coney Barrett echoed that question and said it looked like it could cover Uber, Google search engine, Amazon Web Services. So tell us about those concerns.
1: Essentially, what Florida and Texas did is that they passed laws that were tacked, with over a dozen different ideas in each. And because of that complexity, it makes it very hard to determine who's actually covered by the law and what they're expected to do. And based on the way that the cases got to the Supreme Court, some of that wasn't fully clarified at the lower levels. And so the justices were just wrestling with the indeterminacy of the law, that they couldn't figure out who's covered, what it would actually require them to do. And therefore, they they didn't even know how to evaluate the constitutionality of those provisions. Also,
0: Justice Samuel Alito asked Paul Clement, who was arguing for the tech industry, basically, could the Florida law prevent Gmail from deleting or sending to spam emails sent by political commentators, such as Tucker Carlson or Rachel Maddow? And Clement said the Florida law would seem to cover Gmail.
1: Yes. And so here's the problem. Because of the way the law is drafted, it's not entirely clear what's inside and outside of the scope of the law. So, Gmail, when you think about it as just purely moving email from point to point, might very well not be covered by the law. But, Gmail as an inbox does a number of things that actually helps the email users navigate their email. For example, they put the Uh, emails into different folders that are more or less prominent. And so it's not entirely clear what to make of that because the concept of email is not just about moving messages from point to point. There's more to it.
0: There were also a lot of questions about whether social media platforms should be treated like common carriers, such as telephone companies. So are tech companies more like publishers or public utilities?
1: I think that the real struggle was in how to interplay a speech restriction, of which the laws contain several, with other legal principles like public accommodations, the idea that companies should not discriminate against their customers based on certain protected attributes. So other concepts like common carriage or public utility doctrines, those kinds of doctrines could be in play, but the real struggle is that The court doesn't really know how to think about how social media services differ from, say, a restaurant. Until they get to that basic understanding of the different functions of social media services, they don't even know how to categorize them.
0: And early in the arguments, about half an hour in, Justice Kavanaugh emphasized to Florida Solicitor General that the First Amendment only prevents governments from restricting speech, not private businesses.
1: In your opening remarks, you said the design of the First Amendment is to prevent suppression of speech, end quote. And you left out what I understand to be three key words in the First Amendment, uh, or to describe the First Amendment, by the government. Do you agree by the government is what the First Amendment is targeting?
0: That seemed to be such a strong point, but then it just disappeared
1: from the arguments. Justice Kavanaugh really uh, hammered that the First Amendment restricts how governments act, not how private actors act. And when the government tries to tell publishers how to act, that's a facial, unambiguous First Amendment violation, no questions about it. And for some reason, he was pretty much the only voice making that point, even though it seemed so screamingly obvious All the other justices were struggling to get back to that basic point. And so that makes me nervous because Justice Kavanaugh was 100 percent correct in that observation. And he was almost like a lone voice on it.
0: Well, that's what I mean. I thought coming into these arguments that there was no way they would uphold either of these laws. Now I'm not so sure.
1: Well, it's not a binary question. It's not do the law survive or the laws fail. It could be that parts of the law survive and parts of the law fail. Like in the 11th Circuit, some of the laws did survive and other parts uh, did not. So the the Supreme Court is quite likely to try to make some distinctions about the different provisions and will be careful to try and make sure that whatever they say on any of those provisions wouldn't affect some future legislature's freedom on different topics. So the, the net effect is that it's possible that some parts of the law will survive. And that's scary to me because there was really no salvaging the law at all, either law. Both of them were so misguided at their core that the idea that any piece of the law might be okay is, is really just horrifying to me.
0: Well, if parts of the laws are allowed to go into effect, that means we could have a landscape across the country where different states have different rules about social media?
1: That's inevitable. That's already happening today. And that's a different question for the court that they acknowledged occasionally, but weren't prepared to deal with. It wasn't within the scope of their review. But the entire idea of individual states coming up with their own version of a social media service and how they regulate it just completely contradicts how we think about the internet and really how internet law can function in a meaningful way. So, you know, uh, just to be clear, uh, there are provisions of both the Florida and Texas laws that were not challenged, that are in effect today, that the states have chosen not yet to enforce. So we are already living in a world where uh, parts of these laws are in effect. And whenever they're enforced, if ever, we could see a radically different Internet. The states are not likely to to deploy those laws to advance the interests of the Internet at large. They will do so to advance the voters they're trying to impress.
0: Yeah. At one point, there was a discussion about whether Texas could be geofenced out.
1: Yeah, it's the weirdest message. That- <laughs> The Texas lawyer basically said to get the F out of Texas um, if you don't want to follow their rules. And if I'm a Texas social media user, I'm going to be quite concerned about that position. They're basically begging the social media services to to change the Internet for Texas. And I'm pretty sure that's not actually what Texas voters want.
0: As Clement made clear, this is here on a preliminary injunction. So Could the justices just send this back, you know, for trial and for more findings of fact?
1: That's the best case scenario for the social media services, is that the Supreme Court uh, keeps the injunction in place, or in the Texas case, restores the injunction that was initially issued, um, and uh, then sends it back to the trial courts to determine whether or not a permanent injunction is appropriate. Um, That's the best-case scenario. That that step would have to happen no matter what uh, if the law is um, going to be struck down. Um, But if the courts decide to affirm some or all of the existing laws, they could simply say injunction dissolved, laws go into effect, and either the social media services can never challenge it because they'll have no merit, Or at best, the social media services will have to challenge only after they've been sued under the law. And clearly, social media services don't like that answer because of the fact that they would then have to build a compliance function and hope that they got it right or risk uh, really quite devastating remedies. So the best scenario is that we have further proceedings in this case at the lower court to determine the permanent injunction. And the worst case scenario is that the laws go into effect as they're currently written with the possibility of limited further challenges.
0: Did you see certain justices on one side and certain justices on the other? Or did you have any idea where the justices stood?
1: It wouldn't surprise me if three justices would vote to support the Texas and Florida laws. That could be done substantively or more likely on a procedural basis, simply saying that they reject the facial challenge. That was Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, and Justice Gorsuch. After that, the other six justices were kind of all over the map. I heard some reservations about the laws and the likelihood that some aspects were unconstitutional, but I couldn't tell then if that would support a procedural ruling on the legitimacy of the facial challenge, or if there were substantive agreement about which of the pieces were gonna be unconstitutional. So I come away from the oral argument really uncertain about the future of the cases, and also frankly uncertain about the future of the internet.
0: And by the way, those three justices you mentioned were the ones in dissent when the Supreme Court blocked the Texas law in 2022. So I guess they haven't changed their minds. But, I mean, is there any way you think the court would come out and say that social media companies don't have First Amendment rights?
1: I don't think we're likely to see that broad a statement that social media services have no First Amendment rights. But it's unclear if the court would do something like say that the regulations uh, affected the social media services conduct as opposed to their speech in which case then it would be subject to a much less stringent review. I don't think that's the right answer to this question. I'm not sure there would be a majority of justices voting for that, but that would be a way for them to say that the social media services have First Amendment protection and still conclude that the laws could go into effect.
3: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state
0: Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, I'll continue this conversation with Professor Eric Goldman of Santa Clara University Law School. And we'll talk about where this decision might stand in First Amendment jurisprudence. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The U.S. Supreme Court justices struggled today to find a middle ground on the application of free speech principles to the Internet. They were reviewing Republican-backed laws in Florida and Texas that would sharply restrict the editorial discretion of the largest social media companies. In almost four hours of oral arguments, justices across the court's ideological spectrum suggested reluctance to completely strike down new laws in Texas and Florida as trade groups representing Facebook and Google are seeking. But a majority of justices also expressed concern about how the law's core provisions would apply to decisions to take down hate speech and misinformation and block users who don't comply with the platform's terms of service. I've been talking to Eric Goldman, a professor at Santa Clara University School of Law and co-director of the school's high-tech law institute. Explain what's at stake in these cases, Eric.
1: There are two that matter here. First is the Texas and Florida laws themselves have really devastating consequences for how the internet runs today. They would either require social media services to publish content that we might call lawful but awful, content that most of the audience does not want to see, but the social media services would lose the ability to remove. And more generally, the stakes are that If the Supreme Court suggests that there are ways to regulate social media services, the states will continue to pour extraordinary resources into that potential to try to to bend the services to their will. So the stakes aren't just about the Texas and Florida laws. Those are stakes, and those are extraordinarily high. But the real stakes are what else can other states do? And they are chomping at the bit to uh, basically dictate how the Internet should function. And they're not chomping at the bit to make it better for users.
0: And this started as a political battle over perceived censorship of conservative speech. Has it moved beyond that or is it still a left-right issue?
1: Well, so the Florida and Texas laws trace back to the concerns that conservatives have, that they are somehow being discriminated against and their voices are being marginalized. Those concerns are afactual. They cannot be validated in any empirically rigorous way, but it doesn't matter. So long as the conservatives believe that and they control legislatures and governors like in Florida and Texas, then that can become the basis for regulation that may not make any sense, but makes the conservatives feel like they're speaking up for themselves. However, with respect to the desires of states to regulate the internet, that's not a left-right divide. That is a pro-censorship, anti-censorship divide. And there are very few people still left on the anti-censorship side. Both Democrats and Republicans have absolutely unrestrained plans to to tell the internet how they should function. And so it's not a partisan divide, it's really like a worldview divide.
0: And where does Section 230 fit into this? I think it was Justice Barrett who called it a landmine.
1: So, Section 230 came up multiple times throughout the oral arguments, but it wasn't part of the scope of review that the Supreme Court justices authorized. They authorized a review about the First Amendment, and Section 230 is a statute. It's not part of the Constitution. And so it wasn't actually really relevant to the discussion today. Nevertheless, a few of the justices tried to keep coming back to Section 230, uh, trying to find some way to establish that either Section 230 was wrong or that it put the services in an untenable position where they were backing both Section 230 and the First Amendment simultaneously. Much of that discussion was frankly disingenuous. Any of the justices trying to undermine Section 230 were both talking out of scope and also were almost always wrong about the facts.
0: So will this, no matter which way it goes, be the court's most important statement on um, the scope of the First Amendment in the internet era?
1: Well, it's not the first time the Supreme Court has opined about the First Amendment and the internet. The first case on that topic was back in 1997. And there have been numerous cases since then. So a lot depends on exactly what the court says. In this case, if the court creates a zone of regulation that authorizes states to dictate behavior of social media services, then that will become the most important Supreme Court case on the First Amendment on the Internet because it will be the end of the First Amendment on the Internet. But just to be clear, there are numerous additional cases that are either currently pending before the Supreme Court or that are on their way to the Supreme Court, where even if the Supreme Court gave a full-throated, unambiguous endorsement of a robust First Amendment protection for the Internet, The future cases might undo that. So in a sense, for the Internet to stay the way it is today, all of these cases have to go in the Internet's favor. And that's a really daunting prospect only because the law of math is working against the Internet at that point. There are too many cases with too much risk for the court to get it right 100 percent every single time.
0: And will you explain in a little more depth just what a facial challenge means? Because that was a huge part of the arguments.
1: Yeah, there are two ways to challenge the constitutionality of a law. You can challenge it on its face, saying that no matter how this law is applied, it would always be unconstitutional. Or you can challenge it as applied. After a particular lawsuit has been filed, the defendant can say this lawsuit will require the state to engage in an unconstitutional action. The as-applied challenges are more common in constitutional challenges because of the fact that then at that point you can see all the facts that are in play, whereas when you're dealing with a facial challenge, the facts are uncertain. There's there's an unlimited range of hypothetical scenarios that might be in play. But when it comes to speech restrictions, facial challenges are somewhat common because of the fact that we shouldn't have to wait for speech to be chilled in order for us to determine whether or not the law is chilling speech. So it's really appropriate to look at the law on its face and say, will this chill speech impermissibly? You know, otherwise the law is, is causing harm and may never lead to it as a challenge because people have already uh, chilled their speech. And Justice Sotomayor said something very interesting at the end. I don't know if you remember this statement, but at the end, Justice Sotomayor said something to the effect of, I have a problem with laws so broad that they stifle speech on its face. Basically, she looked at this law and said, of course, this is a speech restriction. Of course, this is a First Amendment problem. Now, how do we get there? And the fact that some of the justices weren't on that program from day one is a sign of how dangerous these cases are, because those justices could rule in a way that that actually blows the minds of uh, the American people.
0: And representing the tech companies here was a well-known Supreme Court advocate and former Solicitor General Paul Clement.
1: I thought Paul Clement did a, a good job today. I will single out, I thought the Solicitor General did a fabulous job today. She really rocked it, and I was proud to be paying taxes to support her work because she she really said what needed to be said and in such a clear, coherent way, I was just blown away by her. She was one of the best oral advocates I've heard in a very long time. She was just almost perfect, really. I mean, it was it was shocking how good she was.
0: You're the perfect person to talk about this, Eric. Thanks so much. I really appreciate your time. That's Eric Goldman, a professor at Santa Clara University Law School and co-director of the school's High Tech Law Institute.
3: The
0: Federal Trade Commission is suing to stop the biggest grocery deal in U.S. history, which would combine the two largest supermarket chains. The FTC, eight states, and D.C. are suing to block Kroger's $24.6 billion acquisition of Albertsons, arguing the tie-up would lead to lower wages for workers and higher prices for groceries. The merger would mean that Kroger Albertsons would have nearly 5,000 stores across the country. Joining me is Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst Jennifer Ree. Jen, explain the FTC's reasons here.
2: They believe the deal's anti-competitive. And, you know, at the end of the day, it, it is because of the way grocery store deals are assessed under the antitrust laws. I mean, the way the FTC would look at this in general is to look at all the locations on a map of the United States where both of these companies have stores. And they're going to draw circles. And the size of those circles depends kind of on whether it's a rural area or an urban area, but they're going to range anywhere from, you know, half a square mile up to 10 square miles. Look to see if both companies exist, and then look to see what other competition exists. And there's no doubt, June, that in numerous locations in the country, Probably the merger leads to a concentrated market. It's possible that there are some regions where they are the only two, and it would be merger to monopoly, or maybe there are three, so it would be a merger to duopoly. So that right there kind of sets a threshold that the deal does have some anti-competitive issues, that it does potentially violate the antitrust law in certain regions. Now, the companies know this, right? So what they proposed, which has happened in numerous other grocery store deals in the past, is to divest those stores. They look at the map, they pick out all those regions where the concentration is too high if they merge and they sell those stores to a third-party competitor. In this case, it's a company called CNS Wholesalers, and they fix the problem, essentially. And what they've said is, look, what we have suggested here is to sell up to 650 stores, and we think that resolves the problem. We think in the other regions where we're not divesting, the concentration levels are low enough that it's not a competitive problem. We think that this company, CNS, will buy these stores, they'll be a viable competitor, and and the level of competition will remain the same. So essentially, what this company down to is the FTC saying, no, not good enough. We don't think that the remedy you've offered up is good enough to fix the competition that's been lost by virtue of this merger. So we're not going to accept it, and we're going to go ahead and sue. And so that's where we are, and that's why they've sued.
0: And the FTC said that that remedy of divestiture Mm -hmm. wouldn't solve the problem given a history of failed divestitures in the supermarket industry?
2: Yes, you know, it's really unbelievable how close this is to a past really spectacular failure in divestitures in supermarket industries, and that is when Albertsons tried to buy Safeway. And when they tried to buy Safeway, the FTC agreed to allow the deal with a certain number of divestitures. I think it was in the hundreds, nothing close to 650 stores. And they sold these stores to a company called Hagen. Well, June, it was a matter of something like six months or less than a year that Hagen just failed. They couldn't handle these grocery stores. They went bankrupt. And eventually, it was Albertsons that bought them back, many of them back. So it's like a picture book failure of divestitures in supermarket industry. And this one looks a lot like that. I think the problem was Hagen was small, and they simply just weren't able operationally to pick up as many stores as they picked up that were divested and operate them successfully. And you have CNS which is a big company, but it's a wholesaler, and it only operates about 23 grocery stores. So you're going to go from a company that operates 23 grocery stores to 650. It's a big leap, and I think it is a tough argument to say that that company can do that and can take on those stores, and they can be as competitive fairly quickly as Kroger or Albertsons were with those stores.
0: Here the FTC is worried about consumers
2: and workers, Right. So that's the whole other piece. You know, I talked in the beginning about drawing the circles on the map and looking at where the stores competed, and that's kind of one big piece of it. But a second big piece is labor and employment. And this has been something that the FTC's focused on in the last couple of years, much more so than in the past. And in fact, there are unions, several unions that are against this deal because they do think it's going to hurt workers and employees. And the issue here is that the unions can kind of play the stores off each other when they're negotiating the contracts, and they can use that leverage to help them get a better contract. And that's not going to exist anymore if these companies merge. And then I think the other issue is some concern about cns and whether cns would maintain union contracts and how they would treat the workers or employees or whether they'd actually close some of these stores and there would be a loss of jobs
0: and the ftc has been negotiating with the supermarkets for months yeah and the grocers also said they would invest 500 million to cut prices and a billion to raise wages plus a 1.3 billion to improve Albertsons stores. So does the FTC just not not believe that would work or not trust them?
2: I think it's a combination of both. You know, not trusting them, not believing that would it would work and also still having concerns about those stores that are divested and sold to CNS. I mean, th- all these investments are something that Kroger and Albertsons would do in the stores that they jointly own. But it doesn't really do anything for those stores that CNS would be taking over that need to continue to operate and operate competitively.
0: The supermarket chains say they need the deal to compete better with bigger rivals. So an Albertson spokesman said that the company is disappointed that the FTC continues to use the same outdated view Mm -hmm. of the U.S. grocery industry. It said, if the FTC is successful in blocking this merger, it'd be hurting customers and helping strengthen larger multi-channel retailers such as Amazon, Walmart, and Mm -hmm. Costco, the very companies the FTC claims to be reigning in. Is that true to a
2: certain extent? So I think the issue here comes down to what's called defining the relevant market. So when the FTC assesses a deal and does this investigation, they're asking, what is the sphere of competition? Who do you compete with, companies that are merging? And they have traditionally, when they've looked at grocery deals basically decided that these companies do compete with other standard grocery stores and do compete to some extent with a Walmart super center that sells groceries. But they haven't viewed competition to include the club stores like Sam's Club or Costco. And they also have really excluded sales of groceries online, the e-commerce sales of groceries. So, That's what Kroger and Albertsons mean when they say they're taking an outdated view. They're saying, look, the industry's really changed. And it's not just about traditional supermarkets anymore. We face competition from dollar stores which I think the FTC doesn't include. We face competition from Costco and from Sam's Club, and the FTC doesn't include those entities. If the FTC did, the market concentration numbers would be lower, and this deal wouldn't look as problematic as it does. Now, the thing here is that oftentimes merging companies try to argue that we need to come together better, to face these bigger competitive threats or these emerging competitive threats. And unfortunately, those arguments just don't tend to resonate with the regulators. They really tend to sort of stick with what they've done historically. And that's why they drew the lawsuit, because that's how the FTC sees it. Now, they have another shot, right? They're going to go before a judge, and they can make those same arguments to a judge, and they can try to present evidence to the judge as to how their own prices and activity is constrained, let's say, by an Amazon or by Costco, right? And they can try to convince the judge that the market's a little broader, and a judge might see it that way.
0: I take it you think that the uh, FTC has the better argument in court.
2: right? Well, right now, I'm, I tend to lean toward that because I've always had my doubts about the divestiture package being sufficient. This is a very big merger of two grocery stores that have a lot of different brand names, I think people might not realize how very big they are when you think of all the different banners and brand names that they own, each of them. And I do think you have this kind of very well-known failure of a divestiture in the supermarket industry. So I think it's going to depend on what kind of evidence they can present to show that CNS can do this, that CNS has the incentive to compete and the incentive to keep these stores open that they're buying, and the incentive to maintain union labor contracts, You know, it just depends on what they can show in court in that respect. They're really going to have to show how this remedy is going to replace the competition that's been lost by virtue of the two coming together. So
0: now where does it fit in that about a week ago Colorado sued in a Denver court and Washington State a month ago sued in its state court? Do those fit in with this at all or separate tracks?
2: You know, they're separate tracks, and it is really unusual. I mean, you probably saw that nine state attorneys general actually joined the FTC suit, which is usually what happens when states want to get involved. They join in the FTC suit. They work with the FTC. It's all one litigation. This was a little bit of an unusual circumstance, not only that these two states filed separately, but also that they filed in state court. So I think, to some extent, for those states where there are a lot of overlapping Kroger and Albertson stores, by the way, it's a bit of an insurance policy for them. If the FTC does lose in court, they still have their own lawsuits, and it gives them, well, the ability to try to block the suit, you know, a second shot at, at blocking the deal, but it also gives them some leverage to negotiate some additional concessions if they need to directly pointed at their own state and workers and facilities in their own states. And I think also there might be some feeling that they have a better shot under their own state laws, perhaps, than under federal antitrust laws.
0: Now, we have talked a lot, but I'm still going to ask you this question. (laughs) So people who have not heard about our many antitrust discussions can understand the Biden administration's laser focus on preventing deals it sees as anti-competitive.
2: Yeah, you know, there really is a significant effort by the Biden administration enforcers to bolster antitrust enforcement there is a viewpoint that it's just been too lax for many years and the result is that we have a lot of industries in this country that are too concentrated. And when industries are too concentrated, it impacts consumers because it can mean prices are higher, quality is lower, there's less choice, there might be less innovation. And that's essentially the result of just having too few competitors. So they really were on a mission from day one to slow that process down and to do what they can to try to stem the tide of consolidation. And in particular industries like grocery, as a matter of fact, So they have followed through by being a lot tougher when it comes to remedies that have been proposed by the companies, and that's what you see here, or really just essentially not being willing to accept a remedy to clear a deal and instead saying, hey, if your deal's anti-competitive in our view, we're just going to go to court and try to block it rather than trying to settle with you with some sort of a proposal or concessions that you think will fix our concerns. And that's what we're seeing.
0: And more ahead. Thanks so much, Jen. That's Bloomberg Intelligence senior litigation analyst Jennifer Ree. In other legal news today, prosecutors in Donald Trump's New York hush money criminal case are asking a judge to impose a gag order on the former president ahead of next month's trial, citing a long history of making public and inflammatory remarks about people involved in his legal cases. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office asked for what it called a narrowly tailored gag order that would bar Trump from making or directing others to make public statements about potential witnesses and jurors, as well as statements meant to interfere with or harass the court's staff, prosecution team, or their families prosecutors wrote that Trump, quote, has a longstanding and perhaps singular history of using social media, campaign speeches, and other public statements to attack individuals that he considers to be adversaries. Jury selection in the case is scheduled to begin March 25th, barring a last-minute delay. It will be the first of Trump's four criminal cases to go to trial. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Podcast. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by subscribing and listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg.